Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I would like to begin by paying my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I am coming to you from today. Land where at brainwaves we tell our stories, and land where the traditional custodians have told their stories for many, many years before us, and continue to tell their stories. I would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present, and acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners who are listening today. Hello, my name is Flick Manning, and welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR, 855 AM on your dial. Brainwaves is a show about mental health with a lived experience lens, and I'm grateful to be joined today by my wonderful guest, Tom Valenta. We'll be diving into some important subjects, in particular grief and the role of grief in caring for a loved one with a chronic and terminal condition. Tom is a former journalist and public relations practitioner, an author and an advocate. In all, he has written a whopping 12 books of non-fiction covering diverse topics such as dementia, cystic fibrosis, corporate histories and alcohol and other drugs. His work in the dementia and cystic fibrosis fields was inspired by personal experiences. He lost his wife, Marie, to Alzheimer's disease in 2009 and two of his six grandchildren live with cystic fibrosis. In addition to the books, he has written articles and scripts and has advocated extensively in all of these areas. All of his work in the charity and not-for-profit sector is undertaken pro bono and funds raised are donated to the relevant bodies. And for this work, Tom was rightfully so awarded an Order of Australia medal on Australia Day 2019. And after I read Remember Me, Mrs V, I knew Tom was a crucial voice that needed to be heard and I hope that everyone tuning into Brainwaves today not only hungrily listens to the words he shares but also gets out and reads Tom's work. Tom, welcome to the show. Delighted and honoured to be with you today. Now your wife Marie was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease at 54 years of age and I can imagine that that was a huge journey for both of you in different ways at the time. Can you take us through a little of what the diagnosis process was like and how that may have affected yours and Marie's mental health at the time? It's very rare for people under the age of 65 to be diagnosed. And so when she was just not well mentally, initially, um, our GP at the time thought she had a depression and so she treated her accordingly. When nothing worked or nothing seemed to make a difference, we were then referred to a neurologist and the neurologist did a series of tests, showed us that yes, there was brain shrinkage and that what it was diagnosed as was was Alzheimer's disease. Now, at the time when I did my research, less than 4% of all diagnosed cases of any form of dementia were under the age of 65 and she was 54 at that time. So it came as an enormous shock to both of us. Our three offspring, a daughter and two sons, were all adult at the time, so they were not living at home. And it meant that um, I immediately became Marie's principal carer. 
In the early days, she was still able to get around. She was able, she passed a driving test. She was able to do basic work, but this deteriorated very, very rapidly. And the shock of seeing someone who you've spent at that point 33 years with uh, was just beyond belief. Thank you for sharing that, Tom. I can imagine it would have been just so incredibly hard to see that kind of change. And, you know, from your perspective, was Marie aware of the changes that she was experiencing? And if so, how was she processing that? She was aware of some of the pro- the changes that were occurring in her in her life, but certainly not all of them. And as the disease progressed, she became less and less aware of what was happening to her. And this, again, was very, very, very depressing, very confronting for me, and and obviously for her. She'd been an incredibly resilient, independent human being. And and boy, she she just got smashed by what what was happening to her. What was interesting to me in, in reading your book was it's not often that these things, I think, are really captured. Why did you decide to write a book about yours and your wife's journey alongside Alzheimer's? What was the motivation there? Well, while Marie was still compass mentis, we sat down and we both agreed that we would do anything and everything we could to raise awareness, to promote research, to promote the cause, if you will. We did uh, research. Marie was the first person in Australia to have a a particular type of um, PET scan that was designed to pick up any sign of Alzheimer's many years before there were any outward signs. So it was something that we agreed that we would do as our way of fighting back, if you like. So what role did grief play in your wife's declining health, the changes to both of your lifestyles as a result of that and ultimately her passing? The grief was was manifest. It was there every day. It came in different forms. We did our best to, to counter it. Marie was very involved in her local community and particularly in her church community because she had taught at the at the parish school where where she also worshipped, and they were incredibly supportive. I kept working part-time, but I kept working for two reasons, to cover the huge costs of, of care and also as, as, a, um, as a way of dealing with my own grief. And it made me focus on, on other things. And, and that, I must say, with hindsight, did work well in, in, our, in both our cases. And one thing I've learned, Flick, is that Everyone needs to deal with grief in their own way. There's no golden rules. There's no roadmap that works for everyone. People have got to figure it out for themselves and implement whatever works best for them. It's as simple as that. I guess as the person that then found themselves in that primary carer position, and as you mentioned, you have three children and obviously they were adults at the time, which... It probably was a benefit in some ways, but still as a parent, there's that level of having to guide your children through this process that perhaps they weren't expecting to have to face. How did you guide them through that grieving? That's a good question. My daughter lives over the other side of town and she would come and 
look after Marie, she'd take her for a weekend so that I could get some respite. My oldest son, he was the one who struggled most, I suppose, because he's a person who tends to hold in his emotions. My younger son lives in Sydney, and so he dealt with it at, you know, in, in, sorry, I, I, I'm, I'm wrong. In, in those days, he was living in Brisbane. And so he did it at a distance, if you like, remotely. And to this day, it's been something that we don't talk about a huge amount. We reminisce about the good times with Marie, with their mother, and how much she would have loved her grandchildren. But at the time, we just seemed to take it day by day. There was no overriding plan. There was no strategy in place. We just did the best we could every single day because every day was different. Coming with that territory, especially if you've got a condition that could be ultimately terminal or that you need to have care for, you do have to have that difficult conversation about are are we going to put our loved one into care? Uh, How are we going to go through that process? And also what's the affordability of those kinds of things? I know you talked actually about your experience with insurance. I know these additional stresses can really make that process of that active grief more difficult. Can you take us through a little bit about what that experience of trying to organise care, trying to organise insurance was and, and how that may have added to the mental load? Without doubt, the most difficult decision of my entire life was to place Marie into full-time care. And the reason why I did that was because both her GP and her neurologist told me I virtually had to do it. Marie was not only uh, afflicted with Alzheimer's and it was advancing very rapidly, but she was suffering from depression. She had uh, urinary tract infections because I couldn't get her to take fluids. And so her general health was in steep decline as well. To this day, I keep on wondering whether I should have kept her at home and tried all that much harder. But I did what what was uh, advised by medical professionals, and I had huge respect for both of them. So I did that. Um, And of course, you know, what your head tells you can often be different to what your heart tells you. To this day, I believe she got excellent care in in the the nursing home that she, she uh, was assigned to, and I have nothing but but praise for the way they looked after her and kept me informed. As far as the insurance story goes, well, we had we were both directors of my little PR business, and we had ad, on the advice of our financial advisor not just life insurance but disability insurance. Now, when Marie was diagnosed, she could after a few months she could not work anymore. And so I put in a claim for her disability insurance. And the insurance company messed me around for eight months. It was clear that they had zero knowledge or understanding of dementia. After eight months, they finally paid up and that covered the cost of the the nursing home for virtually the rest of Marie's life which was just less than two years. The stress that that caused me was just so difficult to, to, to articulate, if you like. And when I did write the book and my lawyer said, don't, don't name the insurance company, they might take you to court and they got a lot more money than you have. I was amazed at the number of professional people who read the book 
and said that they had similar experiences with life insurance, life insurance companies. Those sort of things just add to your anxiety, to your stress, to your depression, to everything that you're going through, because it's hard enough without any of that um, to look after someone who has got not just Alzheimer's, but I refer to all of the neurodegenerative diseases. Thank you so much for sharing that. So how do you cope? I mean, how did you cope then with the, the all of those additional stresses and that active everyday grief? And then obviously after Marie passed, then having to sort of, I guess, effectively talk about what you'd written. How did you cope with all of that emotion? I found, and I guess it's because of my work background, I found that the research and the writing was very, very therapeutic for me. I originally started, it wasn't going to be a book, it was just, just a, a, a journal. And as I progressed, I thought, I'm going to try and turn this into a book. And so that's what I did. And it was just an epiphany to have the thing published. Um, but every day that I did my research, that I did my homework, was really, really therapeutic for me. And I think it's a truism that when you discuss your situation with people who are going through similar journeys, it gives you strength and support. And that's what I found. That's what I found. I got a lot of support from what was then Alzheimer's Australia, which is now Dementia Australia. And um, I met quite a number of people traveling similar journeys. And, and it was very, very therapeutic for me to be able to discuss my situation with them. So true. It's so true. Sometimes just knowing that we're not entirely alone in the journey that we're on can be very bolstering. Now, I know in the book you also mentioned that you went on some sorts of retreats or sort of getaways with other people that were in a, a similar experience. What did you learn about, I guess, the process of how people are mentally coping with caring for somebody in a similar position to yourself from, from spending time with them in that situation? Well, it was really, really supportive to deal with, to, sorry, to meet with people and to discuss with people those who were travelling a similar journey. When you um, socialising with people who have no idea, they can often put one or both feet in their mouths and that doesn't help. That really doesn't help. So I found it very, very therapeutic. Yes, there were a couple of retreats and the word respite, which I had virtually never used before in my life, became a gold standard for me. Respite for anyone who is caring for a terminally ill person or, or someone who's got, you know, a chronic illness is very, very important. People said to me, and, and I quoted them, you cannot be a good carer unless you care for yourself. Spot on. I think we'll just make that the quote for the entire show today. What's the conversation, I guess, that you had in your head about actually learning to prioritise some respite for yourself? It was basically that I needed to refresh, to regenerate my own energy, and that if I could get away, sometimes it was just a matter of a couple of hours. Sometimes when my daughter took Marie to her place, it was a whole weekend, and I was just totally conscious of the need for me to take deep breaths, to walk and to talk and to listen to music and to do the things that do regenerate our energy and our, our emotions. 
Now, changing the course ever so slightly, you have also written about cystic fibrosis and addiction, among other things. What is it about these journeys that attracts you to express them? Well, our first grandson who was born while Marie was still alive, Anthony, was diagnosed within a few days with with cystic fibrosis. When you read explanations or or descriptions that say a life-threatening condition, that really makes you makes you very very attentive and 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 wanting to see what you can do to help. As it happened, my son Lee and his wife Helen had had two sons with CF. There are two sides to the story. With virtually all the neurodegenerative diseases and dementia being front and centre, since Marie's diagnosis, there has been virtually no advances in treatment. With cystic fibrosis, there has been huge advances. And both my boys who live in Sydney these days, my grandsons, are on this brand new drug called Trikafta. And the older boy is breaking all of his personal bests in his athletics. And uh, Nicholas is he has been assessed as having far greater lung capacity than he's had at any other time of his life. So life expectancy is on the increase. However, let's put that in perspective. When I wrote my book, which was published 11 years ago, life average life expectancy for someone with CF was 37 years. It has now gone up to 47, but that's still very young compared to the average for all of us. However, it is all pointing in the right direction, and that gives us all who are involved a lot of confidence and a lot of hope for the future. I might say, though, Flick, I lost six friends last year, and the youngest of those was 49, and she was a person who lived with cystic fibrosis. Most of my friends got into their well into their 80s. So to lose a friend at 49 is a very, very confronting and a very depressing experience. It's my belief and my understanding that, that my grandsons will well and truly outlive me, and that gives me enormous pleasure and, and confidence. I do what I can, apart from the, the book that I wrote. I write articles for their magazines. I'm currently doing a timeline of the Cystic Fibrosis Australia history, and I just feel that every little bit helps and contributes, and that gives me enormous satisfaction and enormous comfort, if you will. Beautiful. And so is it really, I guess, more the personal aspects of, you know, your connection to these conditions that motivates you to write, to do your bit, as you've said? Or do you just find now that you've had that experience of living with someone with a a chronic or terminal condition that you're much more interested in conditions in general? Yes, you are right. I am much more interested in health and well-being in general. I certainly am. But I got into the alcohol and other drug sector through a business friend and his sister um, was a a heroin addict. She'd serve a very long time in prison for, for... intent to supply. And he had become the president of a small agency called Task Force Community Agency. And he asked me to write their 40th history. And I was delighted to do that. And that led me to other projects like Odyssey House, like uh, the book on drug addiction that I co-authored with an addiction specialist called Dr. John Sherman. And I'm currently doing 
the 50th anniversary book for Task Force. So I get enormous satisfaction out of helping to inform and educate the community at large about these issues. And I just continually hope that the information and the education leads to a better environment for us all. Now, there are plenty of people, you know, going through, you know, journeys, uh, much like you have done, caring for a loved one with a life, you know, changing condition. What advice would you give to someone in a carer's role about what they can do to support their own mental well-being throughout that journey, considering this may go on for a number of years? Knowledge is power. The more you know, the more you understand, the more you'll be able to cope. That is my very, very sincere belief. So most certainly get to understand what you're going through and why. Get to understand the person's condition and where it'll take them and where it'll take you. The second thing I'd suggest, and I only suggest, (laughs) is that it's a good idea to look at what resources are available to you. Do you have a strong and a supportive family? If so, then you are fortunate and make the best use of that. Beyond that, yes, if there are friends and communities that you belong to that will put out a a helping hand and offer to help, grab that. Grab that with both your hands because it is priceless. It is absolutely priceless. For the person to be surrounded with those that they know and that they are familiar with, is a huge, huge, huge plus, and it gives them a a sense of comfort and a sense of security. Certainly get professional advice. There is nothing more important than understanding, you know, through professional advice, what you are confronting. What is the outcome? What is the journey going to look like? But I find, or I found, that any professional advice was very, very helpful and useful to me. If I ever had any doubts about some professional advice, I would seek second and third opinions. After that, it's good to really sit down, look in the mirror and ask yourself, how can I best handle this situation? How can I work through what I'm confronted with and what do I need to do to arm myself, to equip myself with the strength and the resilience and the resolution to do the tasks that are coming. And the more you can do that, I believe, the better off you'll be. Now, yes, there will still be grief. There will still be sadness. There will still be huge disruptions in your emotional life and in your other aspects of life. But better you are able to manage through your own strength and and resilience, the better it will be. I think you've you've answered that beautifully. You've covered off lots of really important points there in terms of supporting yourself and receiving support from the outside as well, from people that you know and also from professionals. Well, Tom, this has been such a wonderful conversation and I'm so appreciative that you have shared so much of yours and Marie's personal experiences. And it's a delight to know that your books are out in the world. And I encourage everyone listening today to make sure that you get onto Amazon and you get Tom Valenta's work. Trust me, trust me, trust me. These are beautiful reads and especially good too if you do have someone in your life or someone that you know who is going through their own 
experience. And even if you don't, pick up the book because it's worth knowing what is actually happening in the world around you on a broader scope. Tom, thank you so much for being on the show today. My great privilege and my pleasure. Thanks, Flick. Now, as I sign off today, everybody, I want to thank each and every one of you for listening to Brainwaves. You can catch up with us next week on Wednesday at 5pm Australian Eastern Standard Time on 3CR, which is 8.55am on your dial, or digitally. We have an app now, which is pretty cool. So you can also catch up with us on the podcast side of things. This will be turned into a podcast after the fact on the 3CR website, app, and also on Spotify. I do want to remind everyone that your mental health is of equal importance to your physical health. So if you haven't already done so today, as I know Tom himself said before, make sure you take a deep breath. So everyone taking a big inhale and a nice big exhale, check in with yourself for a moment. Remember to shower yourself in love and kindness because if you don't do that, then you don't have any love and kindness to give to the world around you, which is so important. I'm Flick Manning. Thanks for being with me today. And I look forward to chatting with you next time on Brainwaves. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. That's 1300 111500. Wellways supports 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.